0: Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. I am also the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, which is your one-stop shop for all your researching, predicting, and analyzing needs Make sure you leave no stone unturned by checking out the MMA Fight Archive. There's a seven-day free trial for you to check it out without having to drop a dime. It has all the links to past fights for all these upcoming fights for the UFC, PFL, Bellator, LFA, Cage Warriors, CFFC, Fury FC, ACA, KSW. We got them all covered for you guys. Make sure you check it out. Find out why close to 60 subscribers have joined the movement as well and why... Some of them are comprised of top cappers, analysts, coaches, and fighters within the industry. Again, check it out. MMA fight archive link in the description below. Check it out. All right, this weekend we're going over UFC Vegas 79, which is headlined by a lightweight matchup between Matous Gamrat and Rafael Fiziev. I wanted to put the the H in for Rafael, but no, he is not Brazilian. Both of these guys came up short in recent fights against top lightweights and now they're trying to climb their way back up into title contention and the road to that starts this weekend for both of them. Obviously, Gamrod came up short against Benio Dariush but also was able to bounce back earlier this year with a short notice spot against Jalen Turner and then on the flip side for Rafael Faziev, he came up short against Justin Gaethje earlier this year in London where he put on a pretty good performance, but ended up coming up short on the judges' scorecards. In the co-main event, we also have a decent enough fight between co-main event mainstay and Dan Ige as he takes on Bryce Mitchell, who's looking to bounce back after getting his six-fight winning streak snapped by Ilya Taboria at the end of last year. Uh, We got nine other great fights for the card as well, but it's action-packed this weekend in terms of the amount of fights that are available for you guys. We got the UFC going down on Saturday, but also 21 fights for Bellator. I'll be dropping a full card breakdown for that probably by Friday. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And then also LFA goes down on Friday. I'll have written breakdowns available for that strictly on the Patreon. Check the link in the description below. Not the MMA Fight Archive, which I plugged earlier, but my personal Patreon page, the Lock of the Night page. So make sure you check that out. All right, let's quickly go over last week's Lock of the Night and Dog of the Night predictions so that we can get into the breakdowns. First up, the Lock of the Night prediction comes through very easily. Again, that's the whole point here, trying to keep the hit rate high so you guys can depend on these Lock of the Night predictions week in and week out, whether you play them straight or throw them into the parlay, you got to know that as the Lock of the Night stamp of approval, you can bank on those to go out there and hit more often than not. Last week, Raul Rosas Jr. under one and a half at minus 275. Very happy to play that straight up because we saw that fight complete within less than a minute. I knew it was going to be chaos from jump and we knew Rosas Jr. wanted to get back on the horse very emphatically and that's exactly what he ended up doing. We also had some lock of the night plays hit on the regional scene but also on the contender series last night uh, and that now brings our uh, lock of the night prediction for 2023 to 81 and 24 for a 77% hit rate. Very happy with that. Um, but moving on to the dog of the night prediction, we ended up falling flat on our face there with Kevin Holland as he didn't seem to have the urgency that I was expecting from him and Jack De Madalena was able to do a good enough job in terms of getting his hand raised by decision that night but we picked up some dubs on the regional scene with austin ross as a plus 170 dog on the lfa scene and then last night a big plus 265 dog on the contender series with a daniel james allen or daniel allen james however you want to say his name and that pushes our dog of the night prediction record to 44 and 61 for the year for 42 percent hit rate Again, want to get that closer to 50%, but even at 42%, we're still in the green considering the plus money that we've been getting on these spots. Again, if you're looking for LFA breakdowns, those will strictly be on the Patreon page. Check the link in the description below for that. And also shout out to Godzilla Wins for giving your boy a platform to drop written breakdowns for you guys on a weekly basis. On Wednesday evenings, I drop the main event breakdown that you'll be able to see on there, uh, as well as on Thursdays, we do the three best money line spots uh that gets dropped on that website. Both of those links can be found in the description below once they've been posted. So keep your eyes peeled for that if you want to see a little extra of what I got my eye on for this week. I do want to quickly say a shout out to everybody that's been supporting the contender series breakdowns who have been absolutely killing it. We swept the past two weeks for a 9 and 0. Could have been 10 and 0 if Stephanie Luciano had a little bit better fight IQ and stepped on the gra- gas a little bit more in round 3, but I'll take the push there um, and everything just got pushed back a day this week hence why the breakdowns for the UFC card is coming out on Wednesday this week so tomorrow, Thursday I'll be dropping the top 3 Lock of the Night candidates and top 3 Dog of the Night candidates and then Friday, We're going to do the quick picks video uh, for this UFC card. Uh, I'll also likely drop the Lockheed two-step that night. And then on Thursday afternoon, I'll drop the three best prop bets for you guys. So still getting all the content out for you guys for this UFC card, as well as staying on top of all the breakdowns that we got coming out. Again, Friday as well will be the Bellator breakdowns for you guys as well. It'll be kind of a quick picks type breakdown uh, considering there's 21 fights on it so I don't want to drop a three-hour podcast for you guys so I'll be rifling through those predictions make sure you guys stay tuned for that uh, and keep your eyes peeled all right let's not waste any more time let's get right into the breakdowns for this UFC Vegas 79 card 11 fights to get through and we start off with two women's belts the first of which goes down in the bantamweight division between Tamiris Vidal going up against UFC newcomer Montserrat Rendon obviously we got Vidal entrenched as a minus 220 favorite in this matchup and I don't really understand it considering the lack of skills that I see from her personally speaking. Now she is a slugger in her best right in terms of the fact that she throws with a lot of power on the feet, a lot of big strikes Uh, we saw her obviously complete that flying knee to the body against Ramona Pascual last time around but we know Pascual looks for the door when things start to get a little bit tough. Vidal is a BJJ brown belt and she normally looks to take fights to the ground although I got to be honest that i'm not the most impressed with her ability to control her opponents on the ground and try to grind those fights out we saw a little bit of a sketchiness in terms of her regional record in terms of the fact that she has a win over eileen perez although that was a fight that she was getting completely dominated in unfortunately for the perez side perez consistently fouled her and eventually got dq'd in that fight giving perez the win The win before getting into the UFC for Vidal, she was getting pieced up by a boxer for about a round and a half before she decided to take the fight to the ground with a very poor takedown attempt, but what would you expect from a boxer in terms of trying to stop those takedowns? And then we saw a heel hook be the ultimate end of that fight Not impressed from what I've been seeing from Vidal. She's a fighter. I like to compare her as a poor woman's Priscilla Cachoeira at best, uh, and that's what she looks to do here in terms of just looking to slug it out and try to find knockouts. I wouldn't be surprised if she's looking to grapple Rendon in this matchup to try to get her hand raised. On the flip side for Rendon, she's 5-0. and oh, She's 34 years old, though, so she got into the game a little late, but she's been a lifelong athlete, and you can see that in her physicality to begin with. She's very strong. She's athletic as hell and showcases great strength in her matchups. But I'd say her bread and butter in terms of getting her wins has been keeping a nice, tight, high guard in terms of her boxing and throwing straight shots down the pipe. She hasn't recorded any knockdowns or knockouts, I should say, in her professional career but she's done a damn good job in terms of putting those punches on her opponents and making the damage show which is why she continuously gets her hand raised she has some decent speed and good pops on her shot but i want to see her take a little bit more assertiveness in her fights to try to um Make the bridge uh, or or, or make the bridge wider between her and her opponent when she's going to these decisions. Uh, You know, I think a lot of her success has comes from her physicality and her ability to keep fights upright, and that's exactly what she's going to have to lean on here against Vidal. Who, you know, she will be happy to slug it out on the FIWA Rendon, but I think the tight shots down the pipe, right down the middle, will be able to nullify the wide winging hooks of Vidal and make this fight a lot closer than the odds indicate. Now my concern and hesitancy in terms of the confidence on Rendon comes in the fact that if she's unable to stuff the takedowns, it could look ugly for her on the ground. But I think she's strong enough to keep this fight upright and utilize her BJJ brown belt defensively to eventually work back to her feet and then get back to her consistent one-two down the pipe and really work on Vidal. I wouldn't even be surprised if we see Rendon try to grapple her and utilize her physicality to get her hand raised as well. So at plus 185, you know, I don't know who's confidently going out there and trusting uh, Vidal at minus 230 considering her lack of skills. In my opinion, I think Rendon is a live dog to pull off an upset in the first fight of the night. So give me Rendon and Rendon by decision. Next up, we're going to go with Mizuki Inoue, who's returning after a three year long layoff as she goes up against Hannah Goldie Uh, anyway comes in as a near minus 300 favorite in this matchup and you kind of understand considering the experience advantage she'll have here but also you got to take into consideration how close some of her fights have been even against fighters like Yanan Wu she does a solid job in terms of getting in and out of range with her opponent with her one twos down the pipe Uh, and she utilizes a lot of footwork and movement to try to fuel that striking advantage she normally has over her opponents. Her grappling is mediocre at best, but she's done a decent job of being competitive against high-level fighters like Verna Jandiroba even before she made it to the UFC. I like her style but at minus 300 and with a long layoff I'm I'm quite hesitant in terms of taking her in this spot. Her opponent Hannah Goldie has only picked up one win in her four UFC fights thus far and that was when she was able to snatch up an armbar victory over Emily Whitmire but last time around she got knocked out pretty badly by Molly McCann showcasing that she has a severely capped ceiling inside the UFC. She put on a pretty good performance on her contender series performance back in 2019 where she had triple digits significant strikes landed against Callie Robbins but has been unable to replicate that type of performance since making it to the UFC. And I think she's going to struggle to be able to do that here against Anyway, who in my opinion is a better technical striker. Where this fight could end up being a little bit closer than the odds suggest is if Goldie is able to get a hold of Anyway and drag her to the ground using her physicality as an advantage. However, I think that Anyway has done a Great job in terms of preparing for this matchup. Switching up her training, going all over the world, training at Bang Muay Thai. But it seems like she's been spending a lot of time with her native or fellow countrywoman Kanako Murata who is a very high-level wrestler. And I fully expect uh, Inway to have gained some uh, wisdom from Murata in terms of being able to keep this fight upright so she can go to work with her hands, uh, with her boxing, utilizing that one-two and butchering the face of Hannah Goldie. So I'm not so hot on the minus 300 here on Anyway, but I still think she gets her hand raised by decision. Next up, we move up to the heavyweight division where we got Muhammad Usman going up against Jake Collier. And I believe we got Usman around that minus 130-ish to minus 150 range, um, roughly around there. I know Collier is the underdog in this spot. Now, Usman, we'll start off with him, who's on a two-fight winning streak since entering the UFC. Came up pretty big against Junior Tafa last time around, where he shut down the striking advantage that Tafa had by grappling him pushing him up against the fence and dragging him to the ground and just wearing on him normally mohammed usman is a low volume kickboxer who doesn't mind taking his time to find his openings to really hurt his opponents just like he did against zach pauga but he knew that he had to take the fight into the grappling realm channeling his inner brother his his inner kamar usman to try to get the wrestling going to stay away from the tafa power that is omnipresent but i think that we'll see Usman. Uh, Not really have to rely on that moving forward throughout his career because he likes to kickboxing and likes to utilize his striking more often. Here against Jake Collier, who's on a three-fight losing streak, who had that losing streak start on an unfortunate uh, decision loss, split decision loss to Andre Olowski, a fight that a lot of people believe that he deserved to win. That was followed up where he ran out of gas against Chris Barnett and got finished in that matchup. And then last time around, had a solid first round against Martin Budai, but then we know Budai really starts to pick it up in the second and third rounds, weaponizing his cardio and picking up the pace. And he was able to do so successfully, beating Jake Collier by decision. But Collier looks like he's been in the best uh, best shape since moving up to heavyweight in the COVID era. And it looks like he's taken this fight very seriously knowing that a loss this weekend could end up spelling the end of his UFC career. So I'm expecting the best version of Jake Collier this weekend where I think he has pretty much all the advantages over Mohamed Usman in terms of putting combinations together, dishing out damage and being competitive enough in the grappling realm that he can keep this fight upright and utilize his volume and his forward pressure more to really put it on Usman and pick up a win here. The spot that I like the most is the over two and a half as neither guy is really that much of a finisher and I'm expecting a damage based decision to go the way of Jake Collier in this matchup so he got a live underdog but also the evens at uh, uh, on the over two and a half, I don't think is a bad spot either. But give me Jake Collier to pull off a decision victory. Next up in the middleweight division, we got Jacob Malkoon going up against Cody Brundage now malcoon is coming off of a smothering grappling uh, victory over nick maximov last time around and he's been looking to try to keep that uh that 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 momentum going for that matchup showcasing that he can really smother his opponents by taking them to the ground and staying a step ahead in the grappling realm he put on a very spirited effort in the fight before that against brendan allen where he secured some takedowns some good control time but ultimately the judges scored the damage that brendan allen was landing more than the damage and control that Jacob was able to muster up that night but I think that fight showed a great uh, deal about Malkoon in terms of what his potential and ceiling could be especially after that lackluster UFC debut he had against Phil Hawes way back in 2020 I believe it was where he got knocked out in less than 20 seconds he's definitely much better than that fighter that he showcased that night and I think more people are starting to see that which is why he's a minus 600 favorite in this matchup going up against Cody Brundage just quickly touching on Malkoun once again before flipping over to Brundage. It seems that Mike Mal- Mal Kuhn has been diligently been working on his wrestling game to try to exaggerate and exploit the BJJ advantage he normally has over his opponents. So look for a even more refined version of Malcoon this weekend in terms of securing takedowns. Now flipping on over to the Brundage side. Man, the guy's 0-3 over his last three fights and has shown the worst fight IQ that we could possibly see in the UFC. Not to mention in the Hadolfo Vieira fight, pulling guard and jumping for guillotine against a high-level BJJ black belt like Vieira, that is a massive no-no. And that ended up signing the the beginning of the end for Brandes that night as he ended up getting choked out. And then in the following fight against Adrique Dumas, he consistently pulled guillotine in pretty much all three rounds, which put him on his back and he had almost no answer in terms of how to work back to his feet. This guy is a guy that was known for his wrestling accolades before coming to the UFC, but I gotta be honest that I'm not the most impressed with it. Even when he's been able to complete takedowns, he does not do a good job in terms of controlling his opponents on the mat, which is why he's usually at a disadvantage on the feet, usually just looking for that big punch to try to knock his opponents out. I don't know if he just fell so much in love with his guillotine after he was able to choke out Dolce in a very wild fight, but it's not working out. If he pulls guillotine once again here, I think the UFC is going to be forced to uh, cut the man, especially against a guy like Jacob Malkoon, who's very well-versed in the jiu-jitsu game, a high-level BJJ black belt. I'd be surprised if Brundage is going to be able to pull that off here. I really think that Brundage is going to have to keep this fight standing and hope that his power can translate and put Malcoon out. Otherwise, Malkoon will smother this man and give him no way to get back to his feet I completely understand why Malcun is a minus 600 favorite, and I'm completely fine with throwing him into a parlay here, giving Malkun and Malcun by decision. Next up, going to the welterweight division, we got Tim Dirty Bird Means going up against Andre Fialio. This fight has violence written all over it, in my opinion. Who gets their hand raised? Well, let's get right into it. Tim Means is on an 0-3 run right now, just as Andre Fialio is, but Tim Means has been finished in two of those three matchups. Last time around, he got choked out by Alex Morono after he had a solid first round where all three judges scored that round for him, but then he had a desperation takedown attempt in the second round, which opened up the guillotine that Alex Morono absolutely loves, and Morono was able to complete it and get the tap that night. To means is getting up there in age at 39 years old and might be at the end of the, his rope in terms of what the UFC is willing to give him, especially considering his 1 3, like I said, in his last three fights. He still showcases solid combination striking and has even refined his game in terms of trying to mix and takedowns to win a fight as a whole rather than just looking for finishes. But I think he is best with sticking to his bread and butter, but it's just his durability that is a question mark. I'm always scared when he gets hit clean because it looks like he doesn't really react well to getting hit. He showcased some decent durability against Alex Morono, but a big power puncher will more than likely be able to get him out of there. And unfortunately for him, that's exactly what he's fighting this weekend against Andre Fialio. I'm not a big fan of Fialio, especially if you guys have been following me for a while. You know that I love to uh, fade the man, especially in that Jake Matthews fight where I made Jake Jake Matthews my lock of the night play as an underdog. I don't think I've. Uh, I think that there's only been two times in my entire, uh, you know, tracked betting career that I've bet an underdog as my lock of the night play, and I felt pretty damn good about that spot. Fialio is a slugger, a power puncher, and no matter how much work and improvement he tries to uh, garner under the Killcliff FC banner, this is not a guy that's going to go out there and win a championship or even get into title contention. He's going to be good for a couple first round knockouts, and that's about it tim means is gonna have to be very diligent in the opening round here as fialio probably knows that he has a huge power advantage here and if he just puts a barrage of punches together one of those will slip through and we'll be able to knock out tim means and as much as it pains me to pick fialio as the favorite in this matchup because i always look to fade him with somebody who's an underdog i feel like this is a spot that he goes out there and puts tim means clean out in the first round If this fight goes into the second round, a live bet on Tim Means is not a bad spot at all, especially considering he'd probably be an even bigger underdog come uh, the second round. But I don't think we see it. The spot that I like the most is the chalk on the fight doesn't go to decision because I'm expecting either an early Fialio knockout, which will be my official prediction, or a late Tim Means finish as he really starts to put his punches together, work the body of Fialio, drain the gas tank, and get him out of there. Faito doesn't go to the decision, the best spot, like I said, but I think that Fialio gets that first-round knockout. Next up, going to the bantamweight division, we got a matchup between Dan Argueta going up against Miles Johns. Now, we got Argueta as the small favorite here, or moderate favorite i should say at minus 170 and he's coming off an unfortunate matchup against ronnie lawrence where he absolutely dominated lawrence for about two rounds or sorry two minutes before he snatched onto that guillotine choke and seemed to nearly get the tap we saw the tap hand come out for lawrence he was looking to tap but unfortunately the referee stopped that fight prematurely and they ended up being called a no contest Argueta is a very promising prospect at 30 years old and I'm very surprised that more people aren't talking about him. I know he came up short against Damon Jackson in his short notice UFC debut, but that was a fight where he took on short notice and went up a weight class against a just as good if not better grappler than in Damon Jackson. And even though he came up short on the ultimate fighter against Ricky Tercios, it was a very close fight where Tercios benefited from getting the back of Argueta and was able to control him for the majority of that round, winning the fight on the scorecards. Bargueta is a guy who's surrounded himself with high-level talent throughout his career. From being with Jackson Wink during their heyday, but also being mentored by Cobb Swanson for the majority of his career, this is a guy with a very strong wrestling background who has a great gas tank to go out there and put his opponents through the ringer and wear on them. Grind on them, and more often than not, win fights by controlling his opponents. And that's what I'm exactly expecting him to do here against Miles Johns, who normally looks to do the same thing. But I don't think he's as good as Argueta in terms of dealing with fights over 15 minutes and and utilizing that grappling advantage that he normally has. Miles Johns in his striking round normally looks to put big punches together, blitz forward, and throw big strikes, and he's able to knock out guys like the Kevin Natividads and Anderson dos santos's But the, that's the 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 fact of the matter is his three wins in the UFC are over guys that are no longer with the UFC. Like that's the type of guys that he can beat at this point in time. You know, facing the John Castaner's and Mario Bautistas, he's gonna come up short because those guys are able to dictate the pace. Fights that Miles Johns wins are the ones where he's the one dictating the pace. He's the one moving forward, and he's the one kind of showcasing, okay, we're gonna strike now or we're gonna grapple now. Dan Argueta is going to be that guy this time. Dan Argueta is going to be the one putting the pressure on Johns, wearing on the gas tank of Johns, putting him through the ringer and pulling away late and winning this fight by decision. Minus 170, in my opinion, is a gift of a line here. I think that if we saw Argueta actually get that finish over Ronnie Lawrence, he may be closer to minus 240 or, or minus 250 in this spot, but I think he's far superior to Miles Johns, and he th- I think he picks up this win You know, relatively easy. That first round might be close, but I think after that it's going to be Argueta setting the pace and really just pulling away late. Give me Argueta and Argueta by decision. Next up we got a featherweight matchup, which sure is to which should surely deliver on some entertainment. However, if the underdog pulls it off, it might not be so entertaining. We got Ricardo Hamos going up against Charles Jourdain. Very fun fight here where we got Jourdain as the minus 140 favorite and plus 120-ish on Ricardo Hamos. Hamosh is a very experienced and skilled fighter who hasn't really been able to get his groove going in the UFC thus far. He was actually scheduled to fight earlier this year, but missed weight very badly. I'm unsure why, but it looks like he's in great condition now and he should be able to go out there, make the weight professionally this time and make the walk to the cage as well. Last time around, we saw him deliver a beautiful spinning black elbow knockout over Danny Chavez, just showcasing how good this guy actually can be. He's a BJJ black belt, but he's also a very phenomenal striker. He does a great job in terms of utilizing wrestling behind his striking to kind of surprise his opponents. Just like he did against Bill Algio when he landed eight takedowns that night, he did a great job of controlling that fight and winning that fight thoroughly on the judges' scorecards. That's Hamosh at his best. Utilizing his striking and then mixing wrestling behind it. And he's doing a damn good job of controlling his opponents on the mat, especially since he's joined up with the guys over there at Team Alpha Male to really improve his ability to get fights to the mat with better wrestling entries. His opponent, Charles Jordan, is one of my favorite fighters and a guy that I've been following since the amateur scene 10 plus years ago. He's always been entertaining since his first amateur fight and has brought that style to the UFC and has been somewhat successful with it and has showcased that he can be a UFC lifer by exchanging wins and losses and showcasing like, I'll be able to beat the Kron Gracies and Lando Vanadas, but I might end up coming short against guys that will put full games uh, on me. And that's what I'm expecting from Hamos here. Even though Jordan may, might have the power advantage, he might even have a little bit of a speed advantage, I don't think he's going to be able to stop the grapple-heavy approach from Hamosh, especially as Hamos really starts getting comfortable with his striking and then mixing his wrestling behind it. Jordan has constantly shown an issue in terms of being able to stop takedowns and can are effectively working back to his feet that's why guys like nathaniel wood and shane burgos were able to beat him and shane burgos really isn't a wrestler that guy's a muay thai striker but he knew that he needed to get the uh, the wrestling going and the grappling going to beat a guy like jordain because once jordain gets into the groove with his striking he's a very difficult opponent to beat but i think that hamos is well versed enough skilled enough and uh you know just just a great talent that he should be able to put a full game here against Jortain and uh, pick up the victory here. So look for um, Hakaro uh, Hamos to win his second straight fight. And I think he gets it done by decision. Moving on to the next fight here. We got a welterweight belt between Brian Battle going up against AJ Fletcher. Last time around, we saw Brian Battle dispose of Gabe Green in 14 seconds. Now, since Brian Battle has moved down to a welterweight, this is this will be his fourth fight at this weight class. He's gone two and one thus far. The two victories he's had combined for 58 seconds. He was able to quickly knock out Takashi Sato with a beautifully placed head kick and his first trip down to 170 pounds. Then he got grinded out by Renat Fakradinov, who was able to control him for 14 minutes in a 15-minute fight. But then he was able to get it back in his hometown of Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina earlier this year when Gabe Green wanted to just throw down in the pocket and see who was left standing. Luckily for battle, it was him as he was able to flatline Gabe Green and get his hand raised. Unfortunately, though, he missed weight that night by two pounds. We'll see if he'll be able to get his weight under uh, under control this weekend. But it's a big weight cut, it seems like, for him. You know, something that he was very successful at, 185 pounds, was utilizing his cardio, pace, and pressure to, uh, you know, weaponize his cardio, to to pull away late against opponents because of how much volume he's throwing at them and making the miss and making them really wear his weight, wear that pressure, so that he could be the fresher one in deep fights. But it's yet to be seen how he looks deep in fights against a guy that's not going to be able to control him for 14 minutes of a 15-minute fight with wrestling. Fletcher is a solid wrestler in his own right, but I don't think he has the controllability that a guy like Facradinov showcased that night. I think Fletcher is a guy that was getting off his uh, on his physicality on the regional scene, which is why he made it to the UFC. But we saw him go uh, one and two through his first three fights, and we see what his ceiling is. If he's unable to get his opponents out of there early, he's going to have a very rough time in terms of overcoming the skill set of his opponents. He has some big power in his hands with how he blitzes forward, and the beautiful elbow that he landed on Tembo Grembo last time around to set up that guillotine choke was a thing of beauty. But how often is he going to be able to come through on that and actually capitalize on it? I don't see him be able to come over the, uh, uh, sorry, overcome the 10 inch reach disadvantage he's going to be in this matchup. I think we'll see Battle touch up uh, Fletcher from distance, utilize his leg kicks up the middle, his teeth to the gut, really wear on the gas tank of Fletcher and pull away late, maybe even get a third round finish. But I think that this is a spot for Battle uh, to to get some momentum going. As long as his durability holds up here and as long as his cardio holds up late in this matchup, I expect him to pull away in round two and round three and then eventually get the finish. Give me Brian Battle inside the distance. Next up, we got a rematch of a fight that was a headliner last year. I believe it was last year, in 2021. But we got Marina Rodriguez going up against Michelle Watterson Gomez. The first time that these two two women met up, it was on short notice and it was up a weight class uh, and it was a main event. It was a five-round fight where Marina Rodriguez battered uh, Michelle Ro- Watterson Rodriguez, or, or Gomez, sorry, for uh, three or four rounds out of the five rounds. There's only one clear round for Michelle Watterson that night uh, and it was because of her grappling. But for the most part... Uh, Rodriguez was able to stop the takedowns keep the fight standing and utilize her powerful and just vicious striking advantage she had that night to really batter Warrison Gomez and win that fight by decision. Considering the viciousness and ferocity in which Rodriguez throws it's surprising that she doesn't have more finishes on her record. She obviously has that win over Amanda Hibas early in 2022 but for the most part when she gets her hand raised it's because she's going out there and just battering these women with her striking. But uh, she's kind of fallen on hard times recently. She lost um, earlier this year uh, to uh, Amanda Lemos. Uh, and then obviously, uh, sorry, late last year to Amanda Uh, Lemos, and then earlier this year to Verna Jandiroba, who was able to control that fight for over 12 minutes uh, in a fight where she was able to secure every single takedown, and Rodriguez had no way to get back to her feet. And that's where I thought Watterson Gomez was going to be able to take care or take advantage of Rodriguez when they first met, because I know that Watterson Gomez has an underrated grappling game. But as I'm seeing it more and more, especially during this rough run that uh, Watterson Gomez is currently on, I think she's one and five over her last six fights um her bjj is underrated but her wrestling yeah you know it leaves a lot of room for to be desired in terms of being able to complete those takedowns and actually being able to get to that jujitsu that not a lot of people believe she has because of her nickname being the karate hottie people just think she's a striker you know throwing her kicks and being fancy with her stance and all that stuff but she has a solid bjj game i just think that the the laps comes with her wrestling, the connecting the dot between the wrestling and getting the fight to the ground so she can use her BJJ. I think she's going to struggle that here once again, trying to implement that against Marina Rodriguez. Both of these women are on rough runs right now. Rodriguez 0-2 right now. Watterson Gomez 0-3, 1-5, like I said, over her last six. But I feel like it goes similarly to the last fight. The fact that it's only three rounds now, I still believe that Rodriguez will do enough to keep this fight upright, utilize her knees and her elbows in the clinch, and then obviously have the better of the exchanges in the striking realm with her combination striking and her kicks up the middle to keep Waderson at range. Give me Rodriguez, and I think she wins this fight by decision. And at minus 300, the line makes sense. We've seen this fight play out uh, you know, Waterson Gomez is the older woman as well. So if anything, she might be the one uh, closer to her decline than Rodriguez. But we saw a clear advantage for Rodriguez. And as long as your takedown defense hold up like it, it, it did in their first matchup, I expect to keep this fight upright and batter Watterson Gomez en route to a decision victory. And that brings us to our co-main event of the evening between Bryce Mitchell and Dan Ige. Starting off on the Bryce Mitchell side, he had a six-fight Winning streak snapped last time around where he got finished by Ilya Teporia back in December. That was a fight where he was unable to get any of his grappling going and ultimately submitted to Ilya Teporia in the second round. What had made Bryce Mitchell so successful in the UFC was his takedowns. I believe he had 19 completed takedowns over his 7 or 8 UFC fights. I, I might be slightly off in those numbers, but that's kind of been his approach, his wrestling leaves a lot to be desired or sorry his striking leaves a lot to be desired he's very empty with his uh offense there it's all just to fill the gaps so that he can eventually get in on your hips get you to the ground and control you He's very smooth and great with his uh, and, and fluid with his control from that top position, which is why he was able to pull off that beautiful twister submission against Matt Sales a couple years back. But he does such a good job in terms of staying on his opponent's side glue, dragging them to the mat and just putting them through the ringer. What he did against Edson Marbozo was very impressive. But we saw when he's unable to do that, like he was unable to do against Ilya Taporia, he has trouble securing victories. And I feel like a veteran like Dan Ige has good enough takedown defense to keep this fight upright and utilizes striking advantage to batter Bryce Mitchell. So I was kind of surprised to see Mitchell as a minus 220 favorite here, as Dan Ige is experienced enough, has the skill set, and should utilize his crisp boxing approach uh, well enough to draw out desperation takedowns from Mitchell that he can angle off from, pivot off from, and then get back to throwing his own damage with his hands. So plus 180, I think Dan Egan's a damn good underdog spot here to go out there and pull off the upset against Mitchell. Like I said, he's a BJJ black belt as well. So even if he gets taken to the ground, I don't expect him to get just completely grinded out like he did against Movzar Ivloev, who in my opinion is a better grappler than Bryce Mitchell. But I expect we, uh, us to see Danny Gay uh, stick to his one twos, stick to his movement. Uh, you know, he will likely get taken down at least once or twice. But I don't think that he'll get control long enough that that will nullify the damage that he's able to accrue once he starts to get to his one twos in the striking room. So, give me Danny Gay and Danny Gay by decision, pulling off the upset in the co event. And that brings us to our spectacular main event, which takes place in the lightweight division between Matoush Gamrot and Rafael Faziev. We'll start off on the Fiziev side, who's coming off a unfortunate matchup against Justin Gaethje in a fight where he actually put on a pretty good performance. Unfortunately for him, Gaethje pulled away in the second and third rounds and was able to win that fight by decision. Up until that point, Fiziev did a great job in the UFC, putting his uh, striking on display, beating guys like Brad Riddell, Bobby Green, and Rafael Dos Anjos to earn him that big shot against Justin Gaethje, which could have likely been a number one contender fight but we saw where his ceiling is, right? We always see Fazio start to slow a little bit late in fights. Even in the Dos Anjos fight, he lost the third round on one of the judges' scorecards, he lost the fourth round on all the judges' scorecards, and then he luckily was able to land that big shot uh, in the opening minute of the fifth round to get that knockout finish. But it's obvious. He's a master in the first two rounds, for sure. It's very difficult for opponents to, one, get him to the mat early, and two, deal with the striking onslaught he normally brings. He's very fast with his hands, throws in great combinations, and normally ends off with kicks. But it's obvious if he's unable to get his opponents out of there, things start to get sticky late. And it's not like he completely falls off of a cliff... But if he's fighting high-level competition, they're going to be able to take uh, advantage of that small lapse in terms of his cardio. Just as we saw Justin Gaethje do, just as we saw Bobby Green do, and just as we saw Rafael Dos Anjos do. And Again, he won two of those fights, but I think the issue becomes when he starts fighting five-round fights regularly. And that's what he's getting this weekend against the guy, Mateusz Gamrad, who has a plethora of five-round experience from even before his days in the UFC. We saw him pick up a big win back in June of 2022 against Armand Sorokin in a high action fight from minute one to minute 25. He pulled away in the last three rounds and got his hand raised this guy is a grappling savant this guy loves to just move forward uh throw a pot shot here or there and then just go for a low single leg and even though that may not be the best entry for a lot of wrestlers he's so good at chaining his wrestling attempts together that he eventually drags these opponents to the ground and then gets the positions he needs to just grind on them or open up submission opportunities to put them away and i think that's what's going to end up happening here in this matchup against fazeev Faziev will control the first two rounds but gamara has great durability even in fights that he's been dropped and he just gets on a double leg right away and then gets into positions where he can save himself and continue to fight and try to push through it i think he can do that here against Faziev. and i think that will see him push An even higher pace than Rafael Dosanio's push against Fiziev, which could allow Gamera to take over in round three, win round three, four, and five, just off of grappling her own, because Fiziev's unable to get out of those bad positions. Again, he has a 90% takedown defense rate. That's Fiziev that I'm talking about. So don't get me wrong, it's great takedown defense he's showcasing. But I think he struggles when guys can consistently put that pressure on him, just as it caught up to him in the, the Dos Años fight. And Gamrot's the guy that's always going to be pushing for these takedowns. This guy has a great gas tank for 25 minutes, whereas Fiziev, not so much. If this was a three-round fight, I'd probably go with Fiziev. But at underdog odds, uh, uh, with a guy that is as experienced as Gamrot is in five-round fights and has had as much success as he has had in main event and championship rounds... I feel like Gamera's the side here. So giving Matosh Gamrat to survive <laughs> the first two rounds, to wear on Fiziev and then take over in the last three rounds and win this fight by decision. The over 4.5 is not bad either, as I'd kind of be surprised if either guy gets a finish here. Both guys have great durability, and both guys have good enough submission defense that I don't think one will submit the other. So at over 4.5, I don't mind that. But give me the underdog shot on the Polish fighter here, Matausz Kamra, to get his hand raised by decision. And there you guys go. Breakdowns on all 11 fights for this UFC Vegas 79 card. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Drop a like. Drop a subscribe. Drop a comment. Let me know which underdogs that I might be off on. And let me know what favorites I might be off on as well. Again, a ton of content coming at you guys this week. Uh, Thursday, again, we got the top three Lock of the Night candidates. Top three Dog of the Night candidates dropping for you guys. On Friday, we got the Bellator breakdown coming for you guys as well as the UFC quick picks video as well as the Lockheed two-step free parlay. And then on uh, Saturday afternoon, I'll be dropping the three best uh, prop bets as well. Appreciate all the love, appreciate all the support, and I'll see you guys again tomorrow. Peace. Last thing. Bye.